Welcome to Clint Farm Pod. In this episode, Dennis Velasco speaks with Daniel Hertz of the University of Michigan. They will discuss pharmacogenetics. Hello, Dr. Hertz. Thank you for joining us today. Could you please start off by explaining what pharmacogenetics is and how it differs from the other uses of genetics in cancer, such as the BRCA gene? Sure. There are a couple of ways that genetics and cancer are related. The first, as you mentioned with the BRCA gene, is what we refer to as cancer genetics. So this is the genetics of a patient that causes them to be at higher risk of actually getting cancer. Uh, So some patients, as you mentioned, have specific mutations in in their patient genome, or what we refer to as their germline genome, that cause them to be at higher risk of certain tumor types. So probably the most well-known is the BRCA, or BRCA gene, that you referred to in your question. That's a, a gene that, there, there are mutations in that gene that cause patients to be at a higher risk of getting breast cancer and several other cancer types, including ovarian cancer. That's been in the news. There are other known cancer, uh, there are other known cancer risk genes, such as MSH or MLH, that increase risk of colorectal cancer. And there are several other known Um, genetic risk factors for actually getting the disease itself. These are important for patients because they can tell the patient uh, whether they should be screened more frequently or whether they should take steps to try to prevent um, actually getting the disease. And and that's uh, different from pharmacogenetics. So the second way that genetics and cancer are related is what I would refer to as tumor genetics. So there's some genetic reason why a healthy cell becomes a cancer cell. So a healthy cell uh, loses its um, ability to stop itself from replicating, and it replicates inappropriately. And there's some genetic reason why that oncogenic um, transformation happens. So this actually happens in the cell's genomes. This becomes the tumor genome. It's what we refer to as the somatic genome. Um, And there are many, many known genetic mutations, amplifications, translocations, any sort of genetic event that can cause a healthy cell to become a cancer cell and lead to a tumor. So sometimes uh, in melanoma, you hear about the BRAF V600E variant. That's a very common variant that, uh, that is found in many melanomas. I mentioned uh, genetic amplification. So if you hear someone refer to a HER2-positive breast cancer. That's a breast cancer that has amplified the ERBB2 gene, leading to overexpression of the HER2 receptor. Or in CML, uh, you hear people refer to the BCR-ABLE translocations. That's a a basically diagnostic translocation that causes uh, CML. So in each of these cases, we have a genetic event that causes a healthy cell to lose its ability to regulate its replication, and that's what causes the cancer. Now, because we have done a lot of work recently in characterizing these tumor genetic events, we now have a pretty good idea for a lot of cancers what's actually causing them to be cancer, and that gives us an idea of what kind of mechanisms we can design into drugs to effectively target these cancers. So 
uh, I mentioned before the BRAV V600E mutation. We now have a drug called Vemurafenib that's specifically approved for melanomas and I believe other tumor types that express uh, or that, that have that V600E mutation. Similarly, we have HER2 targeted agents, including Herceptin, that are used specifically in HER2 positive breast cancer. And for the BCR ABLE translocation, we have Imatinib or Gleevec that's um, been around for a while now and is highly effective, uh, specifically in um, tumors with the BCR ABLE translocation. So that's a second kind of uh, genetic factor that's relevant to cancer, so tumor genetics. The third, what I'm mainly interested in, is what we call pharmacogenetics. So those are genetic predictors of cancer treatment outcomes. So now we're back to the patient or the germline genome, and these genetic factors are relevant to how the body processes or eliminates the drug, what we refer to basically as pharmacokinetics, or sometimes uh, we're starting to understand that there are genetic predictors of how the drug affects the body, so more pharmacodynamic endpoints. So we can have some, a patient who, uh, for instance, is highly um, sensitive to a specific toxicity. That would be more of a pharmacodynamic mechanism versus a patient who can't process the drug normally, so there's more of it in their system, and they are at higher risk for toxicity because of that. That would be a, a pharmacokinetic explanation. And... Within pharmacogenetics, we've been working for a while, and we've uh, discovered many variants that are associated with treatment outcomes to specific treatments, both within and outside of cancer, and some are at the point where they are sort of validated predictors of treatment efficacy or toxicity. The ones in cancer that are um, most well-known and most widely used are TPMT genetic variation and response and toxicity to thiopurines. So in a lot of treatment centers, um, all pediatric ALL patients will be genotyped or phenotyped for TPMT in order to select the appropriate dosing for 6-mercaptopurine. That's a, a patient safety issue. It is uh, integrated into the uh, children's oncology group protocols. It's pretty well established. We have other variants, um, what we call gene-drug pairs, so DPYD variants seem to be highly predictive of severe toxicity to fluoroperimidines, including 5-fluorouracil and capecitabine. That's not as widely used for several reasons. And then outside of cancer, there are several known uh, gene drug pairs that in some institutions are being used. So uh, people might be familiar with SLCO1B1 and uh, simvastatin-related toxicity, or um, a, another pretty well-known well -known one is 2C9 and VCORC1 and their effect on uh, stable warfarin dosing, or finally, uh, one that's being used at several institutions is CYP2C19 genetic variation uh, in order to guide clopidogrel therapy. So those are all examples, um, both within and outside of cancer, where we have known genetic mutations that dictate uh, what drug a patient should get or what dose they should get or how they should be monitored, because these are validated predictors of relevant treatment outcomes. Um, for patients receiving these therapy. If we know of the genetic predictors of treatment efficacy and toxicity, why aren't they being used uniformly in all patients to improve treatment outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. So I mentioned that we have validated predictors, validated genetic predictors of 
treatment outcomes, so efficacy or toxicity of specific medications both within and outside of cancer. And what we've demonstrated for most of those is that they have what we call clinical validity. So we know that they predict a treatment outcome. So for TPMT or DPYD, we know that they predict a patient's uh, risk of having severe toxicity during cancer treatment. Similarly, with CYP2C9 or VCORC1, they predict the time to a stable INR, or they help predict what, uh, what warfarin dose a, a patient should start on. Now, that's not necessarily enough for us to actually use them in, uh, in clinical practice. So what clinicians want to see is clinical utility. They want demonstration that using genetic information to inform their treatment decisions will actually improve clinical outcomes. So they want to know if we genotype a patient, if we collect this genetic information and then change their treatment in some way, do we then improve the patient's outcomes versus not having genotyped them to begin with? That's a different level uh, of evidence, a different sort of evidentiary threshold uh, to, to, for, for the clinicians to select um, what they want to do. So because of sort of evidence-based medicine, that whole revolution, which of course was uh, necessary and, and a great thing for medicine, um, the only way to really demonstrate clinical utility is in, or many clinician, clinicians believe at least, is through prospective randomized blinded clinical trials. That's the gold standard evidence uh, for proving that something is, is worth doing and is better than not doing, essentially. And, and what those studies can show is whether you can improve clinical outcomes and whether it's worth the cost of genotyping. The, the issue for pharmacogenetics is that these trials are very complicated, they're very expensive, they take a long time, and there isn't really a constituency with the right incentives to run these kinds of studies. So for a new drug, there's a drug company that stands to gain a lot of money if they can prove that their drug is better than the alternative. So they run clinical trials of drugs. There's no, fin there's no company that has a strong enough financial incentive, essentially, to run these um, prospective randomized studies for pharmacogenetics. And when we have run those studies, and warfarin's the best example of this, we've actually found that the addition of the genetic information to all the other information that you could possibly collect doesn't doesn't significantly improve clinical outcomes. So if you compare a warfarin dosing algorithm that includes clinical variables with one that includes clinical plus genetic variables, the addition of genetic variables doesn't improve um, hard outcomes, you know, treatment outcomes, uh, hospitalizations, bleeding events, those kinds of things. So um, we're in this situation where we have the information that's relevant, but we are having difficulty proving that actually genotyping a patient uh, will improve their clinical outcomes. So the next question is really whether clinical utility is the appropriate threshold. So I mentioned earlier that um, it's, it, it's definitely the case that this is an appropriate threshold for, for new drugs to decide whether we should approve a drug. Um, we should have to prove that it's better than the alternative or at least as good as and has some advantages over the alternative. But for genetics, this is probably not an appropriate threshold. And there's sort of a, a double standard here. So for those people in the cancer community, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of drugs that are approved in a specific tumor type, so based on tumor genetics. 
one that I mentioned before, let's say um, HER2-positive breast cancer. So we have several drugs, Herceptin, um, Pertuzumab, Trastuzumab. Uh, there are several drugs that are specifically approved in HER2-positive cancers. And these drugs, no, no one's ever run a study where we've um, randomized patients to HER2 testing versus non-HER2 testing. What we do instead is we use HER2 positivity as an inclusion criteria for clinical trials of these drugs. That's not what we've tried to do in pharmacogenetics where we actually, as I mentioned before, randomize patients to genetic testing versus not genetic testing. So there's some kind of double standard there between tumor genetics and pharmacogenetics. And in tumor genetics, it seems that there's um, clinician acceptance that this is seems to be worth doing and we should move forward uh, with these studies in specific um, genetically targeted tumor types. Um, that we, we haven't attempted to do something similar to that in pharmacogenetics, um, but I think it's an interesting idea. In pharmacogenetics, um, we've been attempting to do the head-to-head -head clinical trial, as, as I mentioned before, with warfarin. And I think that where we need to start thinking about pharmacogenetics is more like the other information that we use to, uh, the other patient-specific information that we use to guide treatment. So if you think about something like a drug-drug interaction or a comorbidity that might make you change to a different drug or change a dose, those things have also never been proven in um, prospective randomized studies, but they are accepted by clinicians as information that could be useful to guide treatment decisions. The difference with pharmacogenetics is that there's some cost to genotyping a patient that there typically isn't with collecting you know, comorbidity information or drug interaction information. Um, so there is a, a sort of barrier to the implementation because of that cost. And where we are now is trying to uh, convince clinicians that the benefit of using genetic information is worth this additional cost. In your article, you describe a new approach to integrate pharmacogenetics into cancer treatment. Why did you choose cancer specifically? In our article, we argue that there's a really great opportunity to integrate pharmacogenetics specifically into cancer treatment because of the proliferation of tumor genetic analyses. So as I've described before, there's tumor genetics that's now being used to uh, select a targeted agent for patients based on what the oncogenic genetic driver is within their cancer. Within these tumor genetic programs, sometimes they do large-scale genetic screening. So here at Michigan, we have a program called MyOncoSeq, where they do genome-wide screening, looking for all the mutations, the translocations, amplifications, changes in gene expression that could be causing uh, this cancer to not respond appropriately to therapy. Along with the tumor genetic analysis, within MyOncoSeq, we collect and analyze the patient's germline genome. And we do this because if you have the germline information and then you compare the somatic genetic information, it's much easier to see what changes occurred in the tumor that could have caused it to become cancer. Now, we use, uh, currently we're using this information, the, the patient's matched germline inf information, as a comparator for the somatic genome. And we also use it to find cancer genetic variants of interest. So we will 
tell a patient if they want to know if they have a BRCA mutation or an MLH or MSH mutation or anything else in their germline that could predispose them to getting cancer or could be relevant to their uh, children, their family members in terms of cancer genetics. What we're arguing in, um, in this editorial and what we're, where we're trying to go with MyocoSeq is to also use the germline information for pharmacogenetics. So to look at the patient's CYP2D6 genotype, to look at CYP2C19, and to use that information because, again, this information is already available. It is being produced by our uh, sequencing platform. It's being used to find uh, the somatic variants. It, it's information that already exists, and that gives us a really efficient opportunity to have pharmacogenetic data that now doesn't have any cost associated with it. We don't have to take a new sample. We don't have to wait for the information. Now, pharmacogenetics, because the information already exists, is much more like uh, using drug-drug interaction information for the clinician. This is information that's already available that can be used to guide the patient's treatment. And so that's why we think that uh, there's a specific opportunity within cancer because this information will already exist um, to use the pharmacogenetic data to inform treatment decisions. We can also eliminate some of the costs of genotyping, like for the pediatric ALL patients. We wouldn't have to send off their TPMT genotype because we'd already already have it um, from the from the tumor genetic analyses. And, and that information, again, can be used to optimize the selection of the drug or the dosing to avoid treatment-related toxicity. So our argument is essentially that if you have the information from the tumor genetic analysis, then you should be using as much the information as possible, including the pharmacogenetic information. One other thing that separates the pharmacogenetic information from, say, the tumor genetic information is that the pharmacogenetic information is relevant for the patient's entire lifetime. So you have a patient who has cancer now, you create the information, you store it in their medical record. If they come back 40 years later and someone tries to administer or prescribe clopidogrel, then we already have the CYP2C19 genetic information to determine whether that patient is likely to respond to clopidogrel or should be uh, changed to a, 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 different, um, to a, a different medication. Uh, and then I've sort of alluded to this a second ago, but similar to cancer genetics, Pharmacogenetics is heritable and could be used to screen patients' children, their families, for their pharmacogenetic risk factors to guide their treatment. For, you know, if you have a, a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, then it would be helpful to know if their child is also a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, and you can avoid codeine or other drugs that are known to be uh, dangerous in poor metabolizer patients. If you were to perform pharmacogenetic screening in all patients, what do you expect that you would find? Yeah, that's a difficult question. It, it depends on which genes you're covering, how well you're covering them, and whether you're referring to immediate use versus storage for future use, and of course, what drugs the patient is getting. So I can tell you that we looked retrospectively at our first 125 pediatric myocoseq patients. So these are pediatric cancer patients, and we looked specifically at TPMT, DPYD, and G6PD, three genes that we know we can use to uh, make safe selections for cancer-related um, uh, cancer treatments. And in those patients, we found that 14% had what we refer to as clinically actionable variants. Most of these were in TPMT or in G6PD, 
and these were variants that, according to the CPIC guidelines, um, CPIC guidelines being the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, that's a group of um, experts that put out consensus guidelines for what to do for patients with when you have known genetic information. So according to these um, CPIC guidelines, 14% of our patients had clinically actionable variants. There were seven patients with TPMT variants. At least one of those patients had actually received 6-mercaptopurine at uh, an outside institution, so we're, we're not exactly sure um, what that patient's clinical course was. We found one patient who had a high-risk DPYD variant. Thankfully, this patient did not receive 5-fluorouracil here or at any other uh, point in their treatment, but that patient would have been at very high risk for severe, perhaps fatal, um, myelotoxicity. So that's the kind of information that you can collect. Now, if we extended that to other genes that we have CPIC guidelines for, if we included CYP2D6, CYP2C19, CYP2C9, CYP3A5, if we included all the different genes that we have CPIC guidelines for, then I think that almost all, if not all, patients would have some clinically actionable information that could be stored in their medical record and at some point in the future could potentially be used to select the appropriate medication or the appropriate dosing to avoid ineffective or uh, unsafe treatment. What we don't know right now is how many of those patients would ever actually use that information. For how many patients would one of those medications ever be prescribed? And it's it's very difficult to get an estimate of that either currently or even more so to project out 30 or 40 years and know how much information we'll have for pharmacogenetics, how many guidelines will be out there, how many drugs we can um, we can use genetic information to optimize therapy with. Um, but I would say that if we were doing this in all patients and storing the information and there was some system in place to... Um, automatically fire alerts when a patient with relevant genetic information was prescribed a medication, then I would think this would be uh, useful for almost every patient, if not every patient. Have you begun performing prospective screening in patients? And if not, do you have any idea of when you may begin? No, at this time we're not actually performing any prospective pharmacogenetic screening in our patients. Uh, as I mentioned, we just completed our retrospective analysis of 125 pediatric patients just so we could get a sense of what we might find. I'm hoping that based on this information, we'll be able to move relatively quickly in terms of using the TPMT genetic information to guide um, dosing and monitoring in the pediatric ALL patients. I think that's really low-hanging fruit. We were using TPMT information anyway. Uh, currently, we're actually sending... Um, genotyping, uh, we're actually sending out for genotype analysis. So I'm hoping that we will stop doing that and instead start using the data that we have here anyway that's um, free and available. I think it's going to take a lot longer for us to use some of the other information, in particular those things that would need to be stored and would need to be um, accessible in the electronic medical record later on for the patient. So there are other institutions, uh, St. Jude's comes to mind, where they perform panel genotype testing and they move uh, the clinically actionable genetic information into the medical record. It's stored there, and then the medical record has um, automated alert systems when relevant drugs are uh, prescribed for patients with genetic information. For us to create one of those systems, it's going to take 
uh, some time, but we will follow the example of St. Jude's and some of the other institutions that have already done some pharmacogenetic implementation and hopefully create our own system in the near future and be able to take this um, pharmacogenetic information that's already being created for these patients and integrate it into their medical record and then use it in the future to guide their treatment and uh, select the, the best drug for them so they have um, maximum efficacy and avoid unnecessary toxicity both within their cancer treatment and for uh, the rest of their life for all the treatment that they, um, that they receive here at the University of Michigan. That was Daniel Hertz, and you can find his article at onlinelibrary.wiley.com. Thank you for listening. ClinFarm Pod is a co-production of the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics and Wiley. It was recorded and hosted by Dennis Velasco and directed, edited, and coordinated by Joe Troiano. All opinions of this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 